Yes. You did a drill? Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, praise the Lord. He, he, he brought us through that. He brought you guys through that. Um, it, is a, it is a, like I said at the beginning, it's a joy to be with you all tonight. And I trust and pray that you've come ready to hear what God has to say to you and to me tonight. And that is, that is my prayer for you. And that's my prayer uh, for myself as well. So, I encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 4, and our section tonight is verses 1 to 11. Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. You know, one of the greatest, largest freshwater turtles is the alligator snapping turtle. <laughs> yeah. These massive turtles can weigh up to 250 pounds. They are carnivorous and have been known to eat anything they can find in the water, even small alligators. Have you ever heard of a turtle eating an alligator? No. The alligator snapping turtle relies on a deceitful method called foraging for fish to catch their fish. It will lie completely still on the bottom of a lake or a river with its mouth wide open. At the end of the turtle's tongue, though, is a small pink worm-shaped appendage. And the turtle wiggles the end of its tongue so that it looks like a worm moving through the water. And when a fish comes to eat the worm, the turtle's jaws rapidly close trapping the fish so that it cannot escape. Similar to the snapping turtle's lure, temptation comes in the form of something desirable, but it always carries destruction with it in the end. If we could see the end result, rather than the tempting part, it would be easier to resist, wouldn't it? But Satan knows this, so he cleverly disguises what is deadly with the appearance of something that's pleasurable. But as we'll see tonight, here's the really cool part, okay? The Christian can be triumphant and not fall to temptation because of the most excellent example of Jesus Christ wielding the sword of God's word. Which brings us to our theme how the believer can have victory over all, yes, all temptations. Now, in our text tonight, uh, Jesus has recently, as you guys saw last week, been baptized by John the Baptist. God the Father, at that moment, when he came up out of the water, spoke from heaven and said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. This was a joyous occasion. This was a celebration. This was you could say, a spiritual high point. This declared Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior who has come into the world. This marks the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And now in chapter 4, verse 1, we see that right away, after this awesome high point of Jesus' beginning his earthly ministry, we see that right away when he comes up out of the waters of the Jordan River, Jesus 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I, we have to stop here for a moment, okay? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, we have to stop. Why? Because if you're anything like I was when I was your age, maybe probably even a little younger, you would stop at this point and you would think, what? He was led up by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil? You might ask this question, as you might have asked with a about Abraham's life, too. Does God tempt you to sin? Oh, didn't he tempt Abraham? Genesis 22, verse 1. Didn't he tempt him to sin? Please, understand this. Knowing and understanding the definition of the word tempt or tempter or temptation, knowing that definition is more important than your very next breath tonight. Okay? Why? Because if God tempts you to sin in order to get you to sin, he would not be the holy and gracious God of the Bible. He would not be God if that were the case. You see, temptation in and of itself is not a sin or a bad thing. You realize that? It's what you do with that temptation. And it's the motive behind that temptation. What are we trying to get out of this? See, the word really means tried, tested, proved. It has to do with, like, you could even say, if gold was refined or tested or tempted, to see if it's truly pure gold. With, with the fires and the heat, for silver even, melting it all the dross away to see this is truly silver. This is truly gold. It has to do with testing and evaluating something. Much like Abraham. God did not intend Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. But Abraham didn't know that. But his faith in God was proven true. Because he knew that even if Isaac died... God would raise him from the dead, Hebrews 11. As hard as it was, this, test, this testing, it strengthened Abraham and his faith. It did not weaken it. It strengthened it. And according to James chapter 1, when we face temptations, God's purpose is to prove our faith and produce character. And that is a good, noble high, righteous motive in God, testing his children. The tests that your teachers give you, or, or your mom and dad give you, in certain things, whether it's academically or tests in, in, in life, of responsibility, etc., these tests that are given to you, they're not bad. They're not evil. If you're anything like I was when I was your age, my goodness, my parents were the most evil thing in the world. How could you test me like this? Why are you doing this? This isn't for my good. Yeah, it is. Your parents love you, and more so, God loves you. God allows us to experience testings, trials, and they are allowed in our lives for our benefit, even as Job, remember Job? <laughs> even as he grew to know and love and worship God 
infinitely greater than when his life was comfortable. Greater with the temptations Satan brought, which God designed for good and evil. So, it brings us to James chapter 1, verse 13. You, perhaps you've heard it before. James 1, 13. God cannot and does not tempt anyone to sin. If you don't learn anything else tonight, walk out with that. But are there temptations that are designed to make us fail? The answer is yes. But they do not come from God. They come from the devil. As we see even here, partially, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. And it also comes from his evil angels, or you could say his minions. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And guess where else they come from? You. They come from you. How do I know that? Galatians 5, 13, and Romans 13, verse 14. So, God the Holy Spirit here in our text tonight is not tempting Jesus to sin, but he is leading him into the wilderness to be tempted by the tempter. But for what reason? Are you ready for this? The Holy Spirit is not leading Jesus into the wilderness to see him fail. The Holy Spirit is leading Jesus into the wilderness for the sake of battle and victory. Battle and victory for what? To prove Jesus' righteousness and obedience to the Father. For that to be proven. But the devil instead wants him to be destroyed. And we're going to see Jesus' response to each temptation. And it is awesome. It is wonderful. In fact, you might think this is plain and this is boring. No, it's the most exciting thing in the world. Jesus' response to each temptation that we'll see just briefly tonight. And in, when we move into verse 2, we see that Jesus fasted for how many days? When we move into verse, chapter, verse 2 of Matthew chapter 4. How many days did Jesus fast for? 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days, 40 nights. This is very similar to Israel's 40 years. And even Elijah, even Moses, they fasted for the same amount of time. You know what's interesting? Mark and Luke says that he was tempted throughout the 40 days and 40 nights. It didn't just come here at the end, as we see here in Matthew 4, verse 1. Mark and Luke give us the insight that he was tested throughout all 40 days. So it's been 40 days of fasting. Fasting is an interesting thing. Perhaps you've never done it. Perhaps you never need to. Perhaps you've never experienced that. But fasting oftentimes happens in a time of mourning. But fasting is also, even in that mourning, it is preparation for battle. And it is drawing near to God. It's substituting one thing that you normally do and you normally enjoy in life for the sake of a deeper communion and relationship with God. Even the basic things like we see here, eating, 
It's been 40 days of Jesus drawing near to his father in prayer. Fasting and prayer go hand in hand. And during this fasting, it's not like it's weakening him. It's strengthening him. He's replacing his meals with communion with the father. When's the last time he did that? He said, I'm going to skip this meal <laughs> to, draw, to draw near to my God. Because I need him more than I need my food. So, but, but being both God and man, we see Jesus' humanity come to light at the end of 40 days when the scriptures say what? He became what? What did he become at the end of 40 days? What's that? Hungry. Hungry! I mean, my goodness, I, I can hardly go 40 minutes without getting hungry. Jesus in his humanity has been sustained during this time in his communion with the Father. Now, as we move into the first temptation, there's a key passage. You can turn there if you want to. You don't have to, but there's a key passage. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. And this passage helps us understand the nature of these three temptations. Okay, It's like, what are these three? How can I summarize these three temptations? It helps us understand. You know what 1 John 2.16 says? It says, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. These things are not from the Father, but they are from the world. 1 John 2.16. And that leads us into the first temptation. Satan's appeal to the lust of the flesh. The first temptation Satan's appeal to the lust of the flesh towards Jesus in verses 3 and 4. Look at what it says. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, and really it can be translated, Since you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, please keep this in mind, okay? The devil knows Jesus is the eternal son of God, right? He knows this full well. Satan knows Jesus' power. My goodness, he was created by him. He's seen him in his glory in heaven. The devil did not question Jesus' deity. Rather, he challenged him to prove it through a miracle of turning the dry desert stones of the Judean hillside into bread. Here's, here's what, I, what, what we have to understand just real briefly as a side note, okay? He tempts you and he tempts me with your ability. Okay, we're going to see in all three of these temptations, Satan is testing the, 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 the maximum within Jesus's ability. Is it not within Jesus's ability to turn stones to bread? Yeah, piece of cake, easy. But he tempts within your ability. For example, uh, say you're good at sports. Say you're good at music or art or you're smart in a certain field of, of education or whatever it is. Or say you're even a really a good servant of Christ and the body of Christ and, and you get these praises and you get these applause. You get these, all these accolades. That's a temptation 
to you to receive the glory or to give God the glory? What are you going to do with the, those praises? It's within your ability that you say, oh, yeah, good job. Yeah, good, good, good. Receive the praises. Receive the glory. Satan was tempting him to use God's gifts for selfish purposes. Use your miraculous powers to feed yourself. Come on, Jesus. Shortcut God's will and eat. Now, of course, Jesus had the right in all the universe to command those stones to become bread. He has the power and right to satisfy his own belly. Does he not? Does he not? Yes or no? Yes. Yeah, he does. But remember, this is a challenge which Satan wants Jesus to fail, right? He wants him to depend upon something as simple as bread instead of his father. He wants him to question his father's plan and goodness. He wants him to doubt his own sonship with the father. He wanted him to trust in bread and be satisfied by bread instead of his father. I mean, come on. It's been 40 days. But nowhere in this passage either do you see Jesus complaining about hunger. Until this part, he's being tempted. And so in verse 4, how did Jesus answer? How did he fight this battle of the flesh? By relying on the truth and power of God's word. Jesus fought this battle as a man. You know what Jesus said? He said, my food that which fills me, that which sustains me, is to do the will of my Father. That's my food. That's what fills me up. That's what satisfies me. Jesus now, right? I mean, whenever I read this passage, I think, Jesus could have rebuked Satan into another galaxy. He could have transformed him to an ant and stomped right on him. Couldn't he have? But rather, check this out now, rather, what did he do instead? Instead... He resisted the devil in a way that you and I can identify with and imitate. What did he say? It is written. It is written. Out flashed the sword of the Spirit. The very sword that is available to you and to me to triumph over temptation. When the lust of the flesh rises up within you or is offered to you in this world, when you're all alone and you're tempted to settle for something less than God and to doubt his goodness, you can say, it is written. But here's the thing. That won't mean much to you if you don't know what God's word says. If you don't know how to fight that specific temptation or whatever it is. You could say, okay, uh, Mr. Teagle, he said, when a temptation comes, I just say, it is written. No, fill in the blank. What comes after that? Right? You have to have that ready. Do you know God's word? Even just the, as you were doing the, the, the Bible themes. That's huge. That's a huge start to being prepared.
When you're all alone, you're tempted to settle for something less than God and to doubt his goodness, you go to God's word. That's it. You see, the lust of the flesh gets its power by luring you and I to believe that you and I will be happier if we follow through with that temptation. The power of all temptation is the sweet lie that it'll make me happier, happiest. But in the end, it's bitter and deadly in the end. Now, Jesus knows his Old Testament. And he quotes in this passage, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. But I'm going to read verses 2 and 3 for us to set the context. Deuteronomy 2 and 8, verses 2 and 3. And you shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years in order to humble you, putting you to the test, speaking to Israelites, right? To know what was in your heart, Israel, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you go hungry and fed you with the manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, in order to make you understand that man shall not live by bread alone, but shall live on everything that comes out of the mouth of God. Question, did the Israelites really believe that? Did they leave, live in light of that? No, they failed miserably. But here is Jesus, our substitute, and he lives out the law of God in perfect obedience and submission to him. No grumbling and complaining like the Israelites. And he lives that perfect life in obedience to the Father when the Israelites should have. Now, look, real quickly. The point here in this section is not that we should ignore food. Okay? Jesus is not teaching a super spirituality which overlooks physical needs like food, okay? Instead, Jesus declared that man does not truly live by bread. Help me out. Alone. Exactly. Alone. Certainly man does require food. I love food. Jesus loves food. He invented it. But your spiritual life, dear students tonight, is infinitely more important than the needs and comforts of this earthly life. Infinitely. So Jesus here sets the priority straight for us. Doing the will of God and being obedient to his very word is more important than food or any other material thing for that matter. Listen to what Job said in Job 23 verse 12. <laughs> Maybe this should be a memory verse. Maybe, you should, maybe you, should just, you should paste this on your wall. See if your parents will let you paint this in huge, bold letters in your, in your wall, in your room. Job 23, verse 12. I have treasured your words more than my necessary food. Period. How are you armed like a soldier in the fight against temptation, against the lusts of the flesh? Because, listen, the, we're talking here about the lust of the flesh. You know what the lust of the flesh is, as 1 John 2.16 said? Here's the, here's the lust of the flesh, ready? You see this, you think that, you wonder this, and here's what your heart says. Oh, I just gotta have it. Oh, I just gotta. 
I got them. I can't live without it. My joy will not be full unless I get it. It's the lust of the flesh. And reminder, it's a lie. Because listen, even if Jesus wanted you to live a certain amount of time, even forever, without even a crumb to eat, guess what? You could live. That's his sustaining power. You can effectively resist temptation in the same way as Jesus did by countering Satan's seductive lies by shining the light of God's truth upon what is before you. Shine it. And it'll be exposed. And Satan's intentions were certainly exposed here. And, and notice, notice when Jesus said this to Satan, uh, the devil didn't have any argument. <laughs> he doesn't say anything in return to this specific sword drawing that's, that Jesus wielded. There's no comeback. He moves on, though, watch this, to a greater trick. Oh, that didn't work? The devil says, let's move on to something bigger and better. Here's the second temptation. Let's move on to the second temptation. Verses 5 and 6. Now, it's an appeal to the pride of life. The pride of life. It's, it's scriptures say here, in verse 5, he took him to the pinnacle of the temple, into the holy city, into the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, throw yourself down. Now, understand this. Pinnacle of, uh, of the temple was lofty. But the very pinnacle of the temple came to the edge of the Kidron Valley, which was an extra 200 to 250 foot steep drop. Rocks, sharp rocks, thorns, wild beasts, straight down to, to, into the Kidron Valley. I've been there. I had the privilege of, of going there before. It's arid. It's rocky. It's not nice walking through the Kidron Valley, okay? And so here's the pinnacle of the temple. He, 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 can you have a picture? The devil has taken him there. Now, what if they somehow did some transport from the Judean wilderness... Or they took this journey in this time. We don't know, but here's the point. They're there. The devil takes him there. And this is a 400 to 500 foot drop right into the Kindron Valley. So in other words, if any man jumps off this pinnacle into that, that pit, he's dead. He's dead. Now, please note, Jesus in the first temptation uses... The power of God's word. And now the devil tries to use the very same power. And so he says what? It is. What are you doing, devil? This devil has a Bible under his arm and it's coming out of his mouth. Oh, now I'm going to use the same sword that you used, Jesus. But he takes, and what passage is he quoting here? He says, he'll command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He is quoting Psalm 91. But he's taking it out of context. And he uses it to try to get Jesus to pridefully test his father's faithfulness and protection for him. Satan attempts to replace 
trust with a test. That passage is a, is a passage for you and I to, to trust in the Lord. It's not to be used as a test to test him to see, I wonder if God will do this. Hey, Jesus, create a dangerous situation so that you can escape the danger and you'll be glorified by all the people because they all see you up here now. What is he doing up here? And with all the people watching, you'll get the oohs, you'll get the ahs. Put your father to the test. Make an awesome show out of this. But again, Jesus is not going to succumb to that. He uses the sword perfectly. And which, which sword does he pull out again? It's another sword from Deuteronomy. And this time it's Deuteronomy chapter 6 saying, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Just like the Israelites did in the desert, demanding water in anger instead of trusting him. Israelites failed in trusting. Jesus did not fail. Come on, come on. This would be a spectacular display of power for all to see and marvel at. As a man, think of it. What, a, what, what great pride this would bring. How good would it feel for your flesh to do this awesome act, right? Show all that you are indeed the Messiah. Skip the suffering. Skip the bloody cross. Come on, Jesus. Get the glory that is yours. The devil knows that. If you are, since you are the son of God, and if your father is good, he'll give it. He'll give you the glory now by rescuing you with his mighty angels. And the angels are mighty. In fact, the devil one of the mightiest angels next to Michael, the archangel. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to be saved. He came to suffer and to die for sinners. He didn't come to show off and to gain the pride that the devil wanted him to have. Testing the father. Satan, here's the thing. Satan knows that Jesus will crush him by the cross of Calvary. You know that? Satan knows Genesis 3.15. He knows the prophecies that are going to come. And he knows he's going to get crushed at the cross. That serpent of old, Revelation says. He knows that that's who he truly is, even though he appears as an angel of light to deceive us. So the devil... The fallen angel wants Jesus to stoop low in pride by having holy angels rescue him. But that is not, again, what he came for. The devil's lure and appeal to the lust of the flesh has failed against Jesus. His appeal to the pride of life has failed. But what about the lust of the eyes? That brings us to our third temptation. An appeal to the lust of the eyes. Verses 8 and 9. Look at what it says. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, listen to what the devil says. All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. 
Now, this is some amazing moment. The devil is somehow flashing all the kingdoms and glories of the world that will like ever be before the eyes of Jesus. I mean, can you picture that? You and I, we can barely behold just the glory of the sun or just perhaps the glory of a, of a city with its night light. And it's like, we can barely behold that. All the glories of the kings of the world are flashing before the Son of God's eyes that, that, that the devil is presenting to him. And he says, if you just for a moment bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these. I'll give you all these. Keep this in mind. Jesus Christ is the creator and sustainer of all things, even the very life of the devil. Jesus is king, and he owns all things. But in God's very word, who does he say it is who is currently ruling this world? According to God's word, who is currently ruling this world? Satan. That's correct. Here's just a couple, here's just a couple references for that truth. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. 1 John 5.19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And Ephesians 6, he is the prince in the power of the air. Here's the, here's the cool thing. Are you ready for this? Here's the cool thing. Jesus came for this very reason, to contest and destroy the devil's dominion. 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, the first king, Adam, the first dominion ruler, Adam, failed. He should have reigned and ruled perfectly. That type of Christ to come, he failed. And then the dominion of Lucifer, having fallen from heaven, because of his pride, takes dominion of the world. And Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil and his dominion. And Jesus, here's the, here's, here's the thing, Jesus knows the prophecy of himself in Daniel 7, 14. He knows that he will have worldwide dominion. And he even says at the end of this very gospel of Matthew, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. So what does the devil then say? Well, this is true. But just grab it now, says the devil. And all it'll cost you is just one moment of worshiping me. That's it. It's yours now. It's so interesting with the devil. He's like incredibly smart, but incredibly dumb at the same time. And he gets confused throughout the Gospels. You'll see at one time he's trying to drive Jesus to the cross. And at other times he's trying to keep him away. Don't. Like, he spoke through Peter, right? <laughs> he said, no, you're not going to go to the cross, Jesus. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Your thoughts are not thoughts of God. Your thoughts are earthly. They're man. They have to do with pride. No, I came to die. I came to seek and to save the lost. But Jesus here will not compromise he will not fall to this. 
Not even for one nanosecond, he will remain faithful in obedience to his father, by whom he knows he will inherit all things. All things are his. And he's going to redeem it all. Dominion is his and will be his. Not the devil's. Psalm 110, verse 1. Right? Where the father says to the son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under you. And so what does Jesus do again? What does he do in response to this temptation? He sharply dismisses him and calls him by the name Satan here, which means deceiver, enemy of God. What does he say? Go, Satan. Be gone. For what? It is written. What? You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, the sword is drawn from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Notice, again, Jesus does all and fulfills all righteousness in place of his people who should have been found not searching, worshiping other gods, not being filled with the pride of man, not being grumbling and angry against God because they don't have water, should have been found trusting him. Question, what did Satan do when Jesus said go? What did, what did Satan do when Jesus said be gone? He left. He left. He left. Satan is the most powerful being in all of creation. But all it takes is a word. Similarly, check this out. When you and I are tempted by Satan to sin against our God with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, you know what James 4, 7 says? Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That is an amazing promise. Dear students tonight, that's unbelievable. Stand against him, submit to God, and he'll flee from you. And so after Satan left him, who came to Jesus? After Satan was gone, and by the way, real quickly, just as a side note, was this the last time Jesus was going to be tempted? Satan, no. It's continual. It's continual. And it will be continual for, for your life as well as mine. But briefly, after Satan left him, who came to Jesus? Yes. The angels. The angels. Whoa. Check it out. The promise of Psalm 91 that Satan misquoted is now happening according to God's perfect timing. And by the way, you'll only notice this if you open your Bible, Psalm 91, and you have your Bible here to Matthew 4. Satan left out a passage of scripture in the passage he quoted. <laughs> you know what it says? The, the part that he left out in between there? And he will guard you in all of your ways. He left that one out. He totally left that one out. When he said, the angels will catch you. Yeah, yeah, so do it, do it. And he'll guard you in all your ways. Guess what? He was guarded and even that way when Satan was tempting him to fall from the pinnacle of the temple. <laughs> So he completely 
distorts it, takes it out of context. Remember, as Pastor Dusty took us through one of the most important things in hermeneutics and reading your Bible, context, context, context. Vital to understanding God's word. But then, look, what did the angels do exactly? How did they minister to Jesus? Now, it doesn't say what, 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 what they did here, but it says that they ministered to Jesus, right? Right? They, they came alongside him. You know what minister sort of means? Or do any of your Bibles have a different word there? What do you think it means? And, the Jesus, and then the, 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 the angels came and ministered to Jesus. What do you think it meant? What is it kind of like? Yeah. Like gave him stuff and helped him. Yeah, helping him. Blessing him. Listen, I mean, I don't want to read, you don't want to read into God's word. You don't want to put something in God's word that that's not there. But man, I'm telling you, the angels had to bring him lots of bread. Right? Perhaps water. Perhaps, even as Psalm 91 mentions, lifts his weary head after this fierce temptation which he undertook. And you know what? What was most certainly included in the ministry of the angels at this moment had to have been what they have been created to do, which is worship. I believe the angels worshiped. Jesus, the one who had left the exaltation of all the angels of heaven. Dear youth group, we can't understand how great and intense the temptation was that Jesus faced before Satan that day. You know why? He knew the fierce force of temptation better than we do because the one who resists temptation knows its full force better than the one who doesn't resist it. You see, here's the thing. When we give in to temptation... There is a temporary relief. Interesting, isn't it? But there's not full and lasting satisfaction according to God's will when you give in to temptation. It's very easy for us to sin. You know why? Because sin is already within us. So any temptations we face, guess what that is? It's just simply pulling out what's already there. That's what it's doing. It's James chapter 1. Each one is tempted when he is enticed, lured by his own lust. Listen, when you all were born, you were cute. You were adorable. But you weren't innocent. Psalm 51, you were born in sin. Romans 3. The drive to sin, dear... Your kids tonight is embedded in your nature. The seed of every sin is planted deep in the heart of every child. You don't come into the world seeking after God and righteousness. We need him. We need salvation. And truth be told, the sinner is often one who actually looks for temptations to fall into and to get Temporal satisfaction in, because of the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it's stirring within you. But as for Jesus, 
the Holy One in whom there is no deceit or sin, temptations came from outside of him. He has been with the Father from all eternity and knows his perfect love. Therefore, his only and perfect desire was to obey and glorify the Father. Think of it. Jesus didn't fall one moment to temptation. Not one moment. Not one single thought. Not one attitude. Not one word. Think of him as a little toddler or a teenager like you guys. And he never sinned against his brothers or sisters. This is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. He lived the perfect righteous life in our place that we would be acceptable and righteous before God. Hebrews 5.8, he learned obedience to the things he suffered. He did this, first of all, because of the love he had for his father, and he did it also for us, in your place, in my place. And so the believer, the one who recognizes his or her sin, repents and trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, guess what you are now? According to 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a new, what? Creation. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And guess what? Your desires now, if you're in Christ, your desire is increasingly to seek not sin anymore. Your desire is not to toy around with sin anymore, but instead it's to flee it and run to Christ. Which brings us to our application tonight, how the believer is triumphant over temptation. Uh, dear students, you know the answers. And it's going to go one, two, three like this. Number one, meditate on God's word. You, have, you and I have many thoughts in a day. And we meditate and we ponder and think about many things. In the percentage of that day, how much are you meditating on his word? You come to, to a youth leader or your mom and dad or, or your pastor and say, Man, I'm, feeling, I'm falling to this temptation. I'm falling to that. This, this, this. Just simply ask you, where are your thoughts? Are you meditating on God's word? Are you a Psalm 1 kind of lady? Kind of Joan? A Psalm 1? It says, you take your delight in God's word. And you'll be planted like a tree by streams of water. You'll yield fruit. But you can't if you're not meditating. You know, I remember a, a, a word that my mom always said to me growing up. When she was trying to give me healthy food, she'd always say, if you knew it was good for you, if you knew it was good for you, I know it's good for me. I don't want it. No. You have a new heart now. You want the living words of God. You love your Savior. You want Him. But that's not, going to be, that's not going to be increasing your life. You're not going to be strengthened if you're not meditating on his word. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. His word is a light. It is a guide. It is wisdom. It's our delight. It's our food. It's our sword. And here's the thing. When you're meditating on God's word, guess what? Temptations and, and sin, if you're filled up with God's word and you're meditating on it, guess what? Temptations, sin... There's no room for it. 
So it becomes easier and easier and easier and easier and easier, even though there will be a fight and a battle. The more you're meditating on his word, you're being filled up. Guess what? It won't have room. And it'll be far easier to, to, to turn that thought, to turn that eye, to turn that attitude. Because you're being filled with God's word. Number two, first meditate in God's word. Number two, pray. And meditating on God's word and prayer, they go hand in hand. Listen to Hebrews 4, verses 15 to 16. Memorize this one. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The perfect sin barrier in your place. Therefore, it says, let us draw near. That's prayer. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. It's no longer a throne of judgment. It's a throne of grace to the child of God. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that amazing? You can draw near to your great high priest who who can sympathize with you. Because he's been through it all, yet without sin. He's victorious over it. You might say, no, I need someone who can relate to me more and they've sinned how I've sinned. Now that's good. They can help you. That's great. But how about this one who has never sinned and yet sympathizes with your weaknesses and will lift you up and will forgive you and will cleanse you? Only Jesus. (laughs) Meditate on God's word. Pray to him. Come to your great high priest. Draw near to him. And number three, escape. 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 1 Corinthians 10.13. If you don't memorize any of the passages I've thrown out to you tonight, memorize this one. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you. Paul uses a wrestling term. You must have seen uh, the Greco-Roman sports that, that went on in the Colosseum. This is a wrestling term. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Don't think, dear students tonight, Oh, man. You know, that sin, that temptation, I can't really tell pastor or youth leader or mom or dad because they just wouldn't understand. Did you hear what God's word just said? It's common to man. Common to man. Look at what the rest of the verse says. And God, though, is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able But with the temptation, look at what he does. He provides the way of escape also. Why? So that you will be able to endure it. And that word endure is like a, like, if you see those big strong uh, weightlifters that just lift up the 500 pounds and they hold it. And they're standing, and they're not even flinching. Their knees aren't buckling. They're just holding it. That's the word endure here. But why can they hold that 500 pounds and not shake and not drop, have a baby under there, not even worry? Why? Because they've been strengthened. They've eaten the right foods. They've trained. They've prepared. They've readied themselves. How are you doing with meditating on his word? Your time, is this, is, is this another read your Bible more and pray more sermon? Yep. Yep. And that's what we need. You think the bodybuilders want to just eat the same thing and work out? No, they got to do what they got to do so that they have the strength. And so too do you and I. Submitting to his word, meditating on it, coming before him, drawing near to him, and escaping it 
He provides the way of escape. Do you realize what that passage says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13? Do you realize what it's saying? It's saying, you don't have to sin. Because Jesus is better. But it's not going to be better if your eyes are not fixed on him. Fixed on this world, fixed on self, fall to temptation. Fall, 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 fall. If your eyes are not fixed on him. Last statement, and then we'll pray. Understand this. Every temptation that you experience in life, every temptation is an opportunity for worship. Every temptation that you face is an opportunity for worship. You will either submit to God and he will be your delight because he has saved you from sin. Listen, if he saved you, you know he's forgiven of you, of that which you're, think about it with sin. Think about, here's what sin, temptation, I know God's grace, he's going to forgive me, and I sin. No, that's not what the grace of God does for the believer. The grace of God actually keeps you from that because you see his amazing sacrificial love for you. Because he's done it, because you know that you're forgiven, why would you sin? His grace is greater than our sin. Praise the Lord that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. So keep that in mind. Every temptation is an opportunity for worship. You'll either be delighting in him or you'll be delighting temporarily in that sin which brings bitterness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your kindness towards us in Christ. Thank you for the example that you have set for us in calling us to draw near to you. To say it is written. To say I can, I can run to Jesus and I can run to his delight. He is my joy. He is my treasure. He is my satisfaction. Because you died for us. You rose again for us. You saved us. You've adopted us into your kingdom. Help each student here tonight, Lord, to know that they can draw near to you. And that your grace is greater than their sin. That we can have victory over temptation. Because you will provide the way of escape for us to be able to endure it. Because you've given us the same resources that Jesus has. Word of God, Holy Spirit, and prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the victory that you give us in your Son. And for purchasing our salvation for us. Help us to walk in victory and enjoy knowing that you're our high priest that we can come before, that you hear us, you answer our prayers and our cries for help. Be glorified, Lord, in, in our submitting to you and not to temptation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.